We are in a revolution. But it is a revolution in which the side that fires the first shot loses. We will not fire any shots because our weapon is uncommon good sense. Hello and welcome to Tractor Time, where we bring you the leading voices in sustainable and organic agriculture. I'm your host, Ben Trollinger, editor of Acres USA magazine, the voice of eco-agriculture. Today on the podcast, super farmer, Marty Travis. Chicago's top chefs love him. He's got a new book out, published by Acres USA, by the way. And he's also one of the featured speakers at our upcoming EcoAg conference in December. We'll get to Marty here in a minute, but first I want to talk about Acres Events. Yes, we put out a magazine every month, and yes, we produce this podcast, but our events are where we really shine. I'm joined by Sarah De Levesque, Events Manager for Acres USA. Hello, Sarah. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me. So when people think of Acres USA, they think, maybe they think about magazines, but events are a big part of what Acres is about. Tell us the different events that Acres puts on every year. There was a new one this year. This year in 2019, we launched a new event, which was the Healthy Soil Summit in California. And that was uh, really uh, to make sure that that part of the world knows about Acres USA and has access to the programming that we offer at our annual events. And uh, also to do a real deep dive into soil health for any farm and how that can can drive your operation and the health of your operation overall. Who were some of the speakers at that event and how, how did it go? Uh, well, it went really well. We were super excited. It sold out, which uh, was awesome and um, a little bit of a surprise because we didn't know what, what was going to happen in a new market. Uh, but we had some, we had a great speaker lineup. I'm biased, but we did. Um, Gary Zimmer was our keynote and then uh, we had we had John Kempf, Glenn Ravenberg. It was a it was a day and a half event, so it was a shorter lineup than we have for EcoAd Conference, but just packed full of lots of great information, plus a tour, uh, plus some exhibits. So um, we're really happy with it, and we're excited to go back to California in 2020. But EcoAg, that's really the centerpiece of all Acres events. Tell us about this year's EcoAg Conference. Who's speaking? What can people expect? And and how can they find out more information? Well, this year, uh, we're bringing the EcoAg Conference and Trade Show back to sunny, not-so-warm Minneapolis on December 9th through 12th. Uh, We've held it there before, but it's been nearly a decade, so it's kind of exciting for us to bring it back to that region. Uh, But for those listeners who haven't been to our event before or who um, it's been a while for, it's basically four days of fill-your-mind content and engagement that you can apply to your own operation. Uh, So we start with two days of all-day eco-aggie workshops that serve as a deep dive into a number of different topics. Uh, For example, we have Rodale Institute, who's going to do an all-day intensive on organic no-till farming. Uh, Mark Shepard will be talking about on-farm water management. And John Kemp will be doing an advanced biological farming two-day workshop. And then something exciting we're adding this year is a one-day hemp seminar, which uh, we're super excited about. Uh, And then following those two days, we have two and a half days of EcoAg conference and trade show that is totally jam-packed with 40 sessions, 35 speakers, small group consulting time, a trade show, book signings, film screenings, and just a ton of stuff to 
to keep uh, to keep your mind full. It kind of is a little head spinning, but uh, but definitely you'll walk away with a lot of information. Who were the keynote speakers this year? Yeah, so I was going to say the awesome part about this is that we balance uh, great keynotes with uh, our Acres USA All Stars and with um, some new faces. So this year we have uh, Dr. Zach Bush, Carrie Gillum, and Kathleen Merrigan as our three evening keynotes. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're really looking forward to them. And then we have some of our all-stars, Neil Kinsey, Gary Zimmer, Don Humer, Huber, Bob Quinn coming back, and some new faces like David Montgomery and Megan Kaiser and Dr. Nisha Winters. Great. And EcoAg is one of the original conferences focusing on eco-farming and sustainable agriculture. Talk a little bit about the event's history. It's been going on for quite a while. Yeah, yeah it has. Uh, we are going into our 44th year. And as many of our listeners may know, uh, Acres USA started nearly 50 years ago in 1970 when Charles Walters, uh, who was a trained economist and the son of a, a Kansas farmer, decided to start a paper that addressed kind of the plight of the farmer who was increasingly being pushed toward dependence on extensive chemical inputs. And uh, that paper took off and found an audience very quickly. And about five to six years later after that paper, because of the good response, uh, Charles decided to bring together like-minded farmers and readers to discuss the economic situation and the role that ecological farming can play in addressing these challenges. Uh, And just like the magazine, it didn't take long for that to take off, um, which brings us to 44 years later when we're gonna be gathering uh, something close to 1,100 farmers and eco-ag thought leaders in Minneapolis. And if listeners are wondering, where can I find more information on this? Where can I register? What do you say? <laughs> I say uh, visit us at events.acresusa.com. We also can be re- reached by phone at 1-800-355-5313. So for a first-time attendee at EcoAg, what would be your advice? Well, I would say make sure you ask a lot of questions because we offer a lot of opportunities for that. I would say make yourself open to meeting people on the trade show floor and in between sessions. There's a lot of time for that. Uh, We have so much expertise gathered at the event, uh, but it's not just the speakers. It's also uh, your peers, the attendees at the conference. And um, you're going to walk away with a ton of information uh, that you can apply to your farm and and you're going to want to keep building on those relationships you, you acquire at the event. So we've talked about the speakers, but you also mentioned a trade show. What vendors are going to be there? One exciting thing is that we are going to be bigger than ever in terms of our trade show, about 20 more booths than we've had uh, in prior years. And we have uh, a ton of different vendors. We have um, advancing eco-ag, soil works, a lot of the folks, um, let's see, a lot of the folks that we've um, had in the past. And then we have some new vendors as well. We have um, Midwestern Bio-ag. We have Bayshore Sales, um, All-Star Trading. So we'll have a lot of labs. We have consultants. We have equipment companies like Brandt and Farm Power Implements, um, and then a lot of input companies as well, uh, and then also some educational companies as well. So there'll be a ton of different um, folks that you can meet with who all bring um, some information and insight to what, what you're doing on your farm as well. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. Sure. Thanks a lot.
You are listening to the Tractor Time Podcast. We are proud to be sponsored by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are real farming equipment for real farmers and homesteaders. BCS is often mistaken for just a rototiller, but with gear-driven transmissions and dozens of professional quality implements, they truly make superior pieces of farming equipment. Engineered and built in Italy, where small farms are a way of life, BCS two-wheel tractors are built to standards of quality and durability expected of real agricultural equipment, the kind of dependability every farm needs. With PTO-driven attachments like rototillers, flail mowers, rotary plows, power harrows, chippers, shredders, snow throwers, even a utility trailer and a high-pressure irrigation pump, BCS America can supply tools you need to get jobs done across the farm and the homestead. Even on large farms where a four-wheel tractor is a necessity, BCS two-wheel tractors can tackle jobs that simply can't be done with the larger machines, from mowing steep slopes and along pond banks to working soil and high tunnels and hoop houses. Check out bcsamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors and attachments and watch videos of BCS in action. If you've seen the documentary Sustainable, you know that Spence Farm is a special place. It's owned and operated by Marty Travis, along with his wife Chris and son Will, and their farm supplies organic vegetables and heritage meats to some of the top chefs in the city of Chicago. Rick Bayless, Stephanie Izard, just to name a few. That really undersells what Marty and his family have built. The way that they've developed relationships, not just with chefs, but also with a network of small farmers is nothing short of astounding. In my mind, it's a vision for the future of food. Luckily, Marty has a new book out titled My Farmer, My Customer, and I'm pleased to have him on this episode of Tractor Time to talk about it. Hello, Marty. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Ben. It's glad. I'm really super glad to be here today. Well, congratulations on the new book. It's called My Farmer, My Customer, and I would be thrilled if you tell our listeners a little bit about it. Well, this this book is somewhat of a follow-up to the documentary Sustainable that's on Netflix now, and we were um, featured pretty heavily in that in that documentary film. And you know, I've watched a lot of documentaries, but I experienced something with that film that I've never personally done. I've never watched a film and decided, hey, I need to call those people. After that film, and even now, here that film has been out for three, going on almost four years, we get phone calls every week and anywhere from four to 20 emails a week with people from all over the world. Um, this week it was Italy and France and all over the United States. People asking, what can I do? How do I do, you know, how can I get involved? Um, and many of them are farmers or people that want to go back and farm their family's land. Um, and so after hearing so many of these uh, folks on, on phone calls, or in emails, many of the same questions kept kind of rising to the top. And so I made kind of a mental note of all of that and really realized that I needed to get a bunch of stuff out of my head and share with these folks, not so much to create a how-to book, but as a guidebook, kind of as a companion guide for those who, who want to farm in these kinds of ways, 
or chefs that are looking for farmers or just people who really want to connect with their food and the producers of good food. And so that's really what this book is. It's kind of sharing our experience of, of where we started and where we've gotten to so far. And, and for those of, who haven't seen the film, you're front and center. How did that come to be? It, <laughs> so uh, Matt Wexler and Annie Spiker are the filmmakers. And they called us one day out of the blue several years back and said, hey, we're looking to do a, a film project on farms. Could we just swing by and chat for a few minutes? And Matt said shortly after they arrived, they realized that they wanted to focus on our farm. And so that film um, was was filmed over the course of nearly three years, three calendar years. And it kind of is a kind of a, a walk through the seasons on our farm, but it kind of juxtaposes a lot of other experts and other farms throughout the country and kind of takes a, a critical lens of what we do and why we do it. And um, it's been it's been an amazing thing. We've become very, very close friends with Matt and Annie, um, but that film has spoken to so many people around the world. Well, so describe Spence Farm for our listeners. There's a, there's a lot of history there. What what do you think it was that attracted Sustainables directors to 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 your location? Part of it is Spence Farm has, in another ten years, will have been in our family for two hundred years. My son's kids um, are now the ninth generation to live on that farm. The farm is is. I'm going to say only 160 acres, but it's 160 acres of a lot of diversity. We have woodland, we have a recreated prairie, we grow alfalfa for a local dairy um, that actually does on-farm bottling. We grow vegetables, we grow small grains, we have orchards, some livestock. So there's a lot of diversity here in central Illinois where we're surrounded primarily by conventional corn and soybeans. So we do kind of stick out a little bit. Um, and the stories and our connections of what we produce on, on our farm, the products, the, the grains, the, the produce, we have connected with chefs in central Illinois, but also in Chicago. And we've been able to not only connect for our farm, but we also represent 60 other small family farms here in central Illinois, where we do the marketing and delivery for them as well. So we've become this, this agricultural community of farms that really has had a major, major impact on the food culture throughout Chicago's restaurant scene, and especially downstate Illinois, too. You say in the book that farming is 80% relationship building and 20% actual farming. And I think you may have been quoting Joel Salatin there. But Correct. what do you mean by that? Why is that so important to you? 
our relationships that we have built over the course of the last 15 plus years are really the core of our success. And, and it's, it's so important for farmers and, and any of us to realize that relationships are key to understanding how we move business forward. And with our, our farm, we have chefs and individuals, families that can come and visit the farm. Um, we have events for them. We have work days where they can come and understand exactly what we do, why we do it. But I can, I can offer, you know, turnips or radishes or potatoes. And, the, and people have choices of where they can buy their turnips, radishes, or potatoes. But many of them have such a loyalty, such um, a connection to us and to our farmers that that is the relationship that keeps all of us going. Um, we have some really, really committed folks who order every week. We deliver 50 out of 52 weeks. Um, we take Christmas and New Year's off, but 50 of those weeks, many of those chefs order religiously every week. Um, and, you know, it's, it's more than just the product. It is the service and the, the commitment that we have to each other. Well, how, how did that dynamic develop for you? Um, it, it, it's not necessarily the norm if you look at American agriculture as a whole. You're, you're really doing something that's sort of groundbreaking in some ways. Well, you're, you're right. And, and I, we experienced that firsthand one time. My wife and I went out to eat um, at a local restaurant. And as we came out, and we were supplying, you know, product to the local grocery stores and, and so forth. But as we came out of the restaurant, there was another diner, uh, customer of the restaurant, who came out and followed us out into the parking lot and said, hey, you guys, I just want to tell you, the cornmeal that I got at the grocery store last week from you guys is just amazing. And she mm -hmm. said, I just wanted to tell you that before, before you got away. And I turned to Chris, I said, how many regular conventional farmers have somebody stop them at the elevator and say, hey, that corn you dropped off here last week is just amazing. We don't have that in a conventional ag situation because it, it's all, you know, it's all mixed up. But we as food producers have an opportunity to connect with consumers in such a way that we can have those kinds of conversations. Um, and, and we get to do that with our chefs every week. And it may not be, you know, I say this in the book too, every delivery day is not a marketing day. There are many times all I want to do is just, I just need to check in with the chef and just say, Hey, you, are you having a good week? You know, and we don't even talk about, you know, necessarily what's coming up or, or what I'm trying to, to move for the next week. I just, I just care about them as a friend, and that has made a huge difference. So how many chefs are you currently serving? Throughout the year, we probably have between 60 and 70 accounts. 
which is a lot. On any given Wednesday, um, we would typically have 40 to 45 deliveries. Mm-hmm. That's a bunch. That's a bunch. Um, yeah. And, and is that your is that the cornerstone of your business? Are you also marketing what you're producing elsewhere? For us, for Spence Farm, 99% of it goes to um, our Wednesday deliveries, restaurants, and a few individuals that order and meet us at different restaurants. Um, there are other farms in our group that have CSAs, you know, uh, subscription uh, boxes, or do farmers markets, or maybe other other avenues, on-farm shops, and that kind of thing. But we've chosen to do um, the once a week, you know, big push uh, to the restaurants. That worked for us for the scale we were at. Um, and we knew that each week, whatever we harvested, everything was sold. And we could then plan for how much we needed to to grow and produce by having these conversations with our chefs, you know, in January and February, so that we understood what we needed to do, and they understood what we were planning to be able to provide to them. It, here at Acres USA Magazine, we write a lot about marketing. And I think for a lot of small farmers, marketing is sort of a, a, a source of anxiety and stress. Mm-hmm. You know, we produce all these wonderful things, but how do we connect with consumers? But it seems for you, that component of it is ener- energizing. It's super energizing. And and I totally, I totally get it. You know, we work with, you know, 60 other small family farms and the vast majority of them say, you know, we are thrilled that you do this because this is not anything that we want to have a part of. We don't want to drive in the city. We don't want to have to go talk to people and we just want to stay on the farm and produce. So, you know, my son Will and I are basically the advocates for the farmers to the chefs, but we've also become the advocates for the chefs back to the farmers to close that loop and to have that conversation back and forth. I'm I'm thrilled to be able to do this. I work really hard at communication. I work really hard at remembering, you know, if we're taken to 45 different restaurants, I want to know not only the chef's name, but the sous chef's name. I need to know the owner. I need to know the bookkeeper's name. A lot of times I want to know the dishwasher's name because they're the ones that's going to help me carry stuff in. Mm-hmm. So it's important for me to be on top of my game as we work through the city. Um, and, you know, that makes a huge, huge difference then in, you know, the relationship again. If you remember somebody's name and that's, that's, that's super important. And, and you develop these strong relationships with so many restaurants and chefs, but one really stands out for me being from Texas, I have a, an abiding love for Mexican food, but I mostly grew up with Tex-Mex. And mm-hmm. Rick Bayless uh, really opened my eyes to the complexity and the beauty of interior Mexican food um, through his PBS show and through his cookbooks. Mm-hmm. Um, talk a little bit about that relationship and how it developed and also how it influenced you as a farmer. Sure. We've had 
a really long and outstanding relationship with Rick and, and his staff and his restaurants. Rick and one of his uh, sous chefs have honestly been the longest relationship for 16 years now that we have had on a continual uh, basis. Uh, Rick was at the very first meeting and we were introduced to him um, when we were first introduced to, to a number of chefs. Um, and that relationship has been such that, you know, they're seeking very specific products and we were able to provide many of those products. And it kind of goes back to um, this, this relationship thing. About four or five years ago, we had an incredibly wet growing season, um, crazy growing season, where everything that we planted early on came up, but by mid-May through the end of June, uh, June, almost into July, we had like 36 inches of rain. Hmm. And we were getting, you know, five, six inches of rain a week. And we were losing everything. And Rick kind of recognized what was going on, and it was happening throughout the Midwest. And he and I talked briefly about it. And the next thing I knew, a couple of his staff said, he told us, we had a meeting, and Rick told his staff, he says, all of the farmers are having a really tough season. And he says, even though we don't maybe use such and such, I want you to buy as much as we possibly can from all of the farmers because they need to get through this season and we can't afford to let them fail. Hmm. Ben, that's huge. And so it makes me then think too, we're all in this together, whether it's our group of farmers, our relationship with our chefs, we're all in this so much and so invested in each other that we can't allow any of us to fail if we're going to be successful. Mm -hmm. And that, that comes back where, yeah, we, we pulled through the season. Um, we, we still ended up making more than we did the year before. And it was, it was a trial, but it was a dedication of Rick and, and his staff and many of the chefs that we work with that pulled us through. And, you know, we'll turn the tides a lot of times then, and we've had conversations with other chefs. What can we do, you know, separate from dropping prices or, or giving you a better price, but what can we do to help you and your kitchen be excited about what, what we're providing. And one of the things that we ended up doing, and we've done this for a number of restaurants, is just when we have extra things, we'll just take and, and drop off because all of those restaurants, they have to feed their staff each day. Mm-hmm. So we're providing product for them so that the staff can have the same quality of product that they're feeding their customers. And when we've got extra and we can do that, I mean, that makes a huge difference right there. There again, we're trying to do the payback thing. 
they're investing in us, we want to invest in their success too. And I'm fascinated by the, the sort of mutuality of this relationship and how there's this back and forth, there's this continuing conversation that's always going on about what they need, what you need. Talk a little bit about how how those conversations play out. I mean, you're 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 working with chefs who are sort of at the forefront of developing trends and taste, uh, and you know they're asking you to grow things that maybe you've never grown before. Um, sure. How does that play out, and what do you learn from those kinds of conversations? Well, and I'll I'll follow through you know on this thread with with Rick. There were two specific. Um, varieties of peppers that he was looking for that were not available in the United States. He was having having them grown in Mexico and then having them brought in, and you know that was that was difficult and and not always um, reliable. And so he asked if we might be able to find the seed for those couple peppers and. He helped uh, connect us with folks in in Mexico, and we were able to, you know, we we ended up getting some seed. It took Ben. It took a couple years for us of growing that pepper and acclimating it to Central Illinois. Um, the first year, the peppers we only got two or three or four ripe peppers before the frost hit, but we saved the seed from that and then have acclimated and now we get sometimes as many as four or five, six weeks worth of peppers that we're able to harvest now. But that, that is, that's something that, you know, Frontera will take all of the peppers we could possibly grow um, for of that particular variety for their black mole sauce. Hmm. And they've agreed to pay, you know, a premium for that. And we've really focused hard at growing the best of those peppers that we possibly can. And that's something where, yes, chefs are looking for things that maybe they find as they travel the world. You know, it may be a pepper, it may be a cabbage, it may be an eggplant. Uh, or tomato, and they've experienced that somewhere else, if they can come back and, and talk about that experience and, and what that's like, and we're able to find that seed, bring it, acclimate it, and then if we don't grow it on our farm, I can pass that to one of our other younger farmers who is always looking for something, you know, everybody's looking for the next latest greatest. And if we can empower other folks to grow these things and then make them available more widely. I mean, I feel like we've, we've accomplished a major piece. So uh, over the years, you've, you've seen demands change, um, tastes change, different trends emerge within um, the restaurant scene. Mm -hmm. What, what are you seeing right now? What's in demand right now? Oh, I would say, for many of them, um, they're really excited about um, this this group of, of uh, varieties 
that Dan Barber has put together uh, through Row 7 Seeds, mm-hmm. the Badger Flame Beet. Uh, we had a f- few farms uh, that got some seed and grew those this year, and it was like an oh-my-God moment for most of these chefs. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, you know, we couldn't, we couldn't possibly grow enough badger beets to supply everybody. Um, and that was, that was exciting. And so everybody's excited to see that happen again. Um, we, we have one client that takes nearly a thousand pounds of kale a week. And most, most of us think, well, kale's about, about seeing the heyday, but Mm -hmm. it's a juice place. Um, and so we, we move a lot, a lot of kale. Um, lots of peppers, lots of greens. It's a lot of everything. Our, our weekly list right now, even in October, is still close to three or 400 items, different varieties, different things. Um, so it's, I don't know. I, I think, you know, there's certain chefs that, that will always discover something new or something new to do with a product. And so while we're moving into the period of, of uh, forever root, root veg until March, right. um, <laughs> um, they're all still trying to figure out, well, what else can we do and what other varieties haven't we tried yet? Um, and then let's think about next year, you know, what is it that they would be excited to have come come April and May next year. And your farm is, is surrounded by operations that are growing corn or soy. Mm-hmm. I imagine for you, growing a huge array of different crops is probably what makes it exciting. It is. And, you know, I, I have to say over the course of the last, you know, 10 years, in many ways on Spence Farm, we've scaled back the variety. I mean, we were doing a couple hundred different varieties um, 10 years ago, and we're, we've scaled back to 30 or 40 at this point, mm-hmm. um, partly because of labor and partly because we have all these other farms now who are looking for opportunities. And the, and the amount of time that Will and I are doing marketing and delivery is greatly increased, and so we've got to be conscious of not burning each other out and and not being able to spend as much time in the field and doing handwork as we've done in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we've gone to more mechanization. Um, we've got a potato harvester, a potato planter, um, and then doing small grains of wheat, different varieties of wheat and rye, uh, dry corns and those kinds of things. Um, so we've, we've evolved as a farm and I think, you know, embracing change and and understanding that it's okay to change is important for farmers to realize, and not to not to always get stuck in saying, you know, this is the rut I've I've chosen to be in, um, but you can choose not to be in that rut. You can choose to understand what the market is, and and if something isn't working well, then then make another decision. Um, it's not a, a right or wrong decision. Just make another decision. 
the other the other saying that we have on our farm we strive continually to fail better <laughs> mm-hmm. and and understand when something isn't isn't working well then understand why but then figure out a way to to work around that so you're you're growing this huge array of of things on your on your farm but as i was reading in the book it this journey for you started with the humble ramp in some ways. And, <laughs> yep. and, I, and I would love it if you could tell us that story. Sure. Well, we started being a monoculture farm. <laughs> um, right. um, we, we had a, an elderly cousin who's since passed away that had a property of 26 acres of woodland. And it was nearly 24 acres of wild ramps. Um, and they were so invasive that they were honestly, in many ways, crowding out many of the wildflowers. And, you know, he didn't enjoy walking through it in the spring because it was just so, you know, so pungent. Um, and it was, there was a lot of, a lot, a lot of ramps. So he, he made the mention, he says, if you guys can figure something out to do with those, he says, I'd be all, all about that. So we began exploring and researching, found a distributor in Michigan, um, uh, Earthy Delights uh, in Lansing, Michigan, that distributed ramps, you know, across the country. So we ended up selling, you know, nearly 4,000 pounds of ramps a year, about 1,000 pounds a week. And realized very shortly that he was, you know, delivering a lot of ramps, uh, sending them back to chefs in Chicago. And then through all of that, that whole research and understanding, we got invited to a chef's collaborative meeting in Chicago, met with these chefs, took some ramps with us, and everybody wanted them. And we were early, earlier than most uh, of what they could get out of Wisconsin or Michigan. And so we, we had a ready market for, for our ramps. At the end of ramp season, by the end of April, all of those chefs you know, kept saying, well, we want to still buy stuff. What else do you have? Well, we didn't have anything. And so then that whole conversation turned into, what is it that you would like? And we would be happy to grow that. Mm-hmm. And so that then opened the doors and the floodgates and... You know, we could never have dreamed where we would be today um, or, you know, how many other farms we would involve in this whole endeavor, this big adventure. But it's it's because of basically one product that opened the door for us that we've been able to, you know, last year we as a collective delivered 111 tons of product. Um, to our restaurants and that's you know where we started out with you know delivering 4,000 pounds two tons of ramps you know 15 16 years ago to to move to 111 tons of product is is pretty remarkable you mentioned earlier that Spence Farm had been in your family for now approaching 200 years but listeners might not know that 
you had this whole other life before you decided to become a farmer. Tell, yeah. us a little, tell us a little bit about that. So for 35 years, I basically uh, built furniture. I built reproduction shaker furniture for clients all over the world. So I did work for um, the Smithsonian gift shop, for Macy's in New York, uh, did some work for Oprah, for the White House. I furnished the Blue Cross Blue Shield executive floor in Chicago and just shops in London and Tokyo and all over the States and had wonderful experiences building, you know, building furniture for people and, and made some amazing connections. But at the end of the time, Ben, I also realized that there wasn't, you know, and I love doing that and, and it's important to, to pass on, you know, for other people to appreciate art and, and all of that beauty and wood and all of that. But I realized that there was very little, if anything, that I ever made in 35 years that anybody really needed. Mm. And when Chris asked me one time, she said, what would you do if, if you had a doctor tell you and you're perfectly healthy, but that you can't, that you really shouldn't do woodwork anymore? And that's when I said, well, we live on this cute little farm here, and maybe we ought to think about how we could best utilize this and do something with it. And so we, that's where we really began with the ramps and began expanding further and further into the food aspect. And everybody needs to eat. They really need to eat good food. And that's become, you know, super important to us. It's also been come, become very important for us to, to, to provide opportunities for, for young people in this, in this farming community. So when your wife, Chris, asked you that question, um, how old were you? Believe it or not, I was probably 41, 42. Mm -hmm. So it's like an encore career now. Um, and I... I really don't do much of any woodworking anymore, so I've pretty much retired from that. But it was a it was a total change. But I have to say, Ben, that I was able to. Um, both Chris and I came from different different um, work ethics, to where we were able to take what we've learned as far as business and marketing from those business opportunities and in our previous times and apply that to this whole farm adventure. Well, how, how steep was the learning curve for you when you made that decision uh, to go full-time into farming? I mean, obviously sure. it, was, it was in your blood to some extent, but sure. you, you had never done it professionally. Um, no. what, what was that experience like and what did you do to sort of rise to the occasion? Sure, well, I had always gardened. I had always planted lots of trees and, and shrubs. I was really involved in, in, you know, the natural aspect of things and, and enjoyed the farm itself. But we started with a garden that was like 40 by 80 feet. And we like doubled and tripled that until we were planting in an acre within two or three years. And now I mean, and it was petrifying, it was terrifying to think about trying to farm this whole farm of 100 plus acres tillable because 
we didn't have money to go buy tons of equipment. We didn't have the knowledge, um, but we we immersed ourselves as rapidly as we could into reading and visiting other people who were doing things um, that we wanted to mimic. And we we kind of surrounded ourselves with a few old-timey mentors in the community and and just tried to listen as much as we possibly could. And yeah, we made mistakes as we went. and But we also researched. One of our neighbors that, that had farmed for us at the time, we I'll never forget one spring we planted some spring wheat. And he came to us, he says, you can't plant wheat in the spring. I says, why not? He says, well, it's always planted in the fall. And I said, back in the 1840s, this variety was planted here in the spring. <laughs> and he says, well, I don't know about that. But he says, you should plant it in the fall. Well, we planted spring wheat and have continued to do so ever since and have done okay with it. We plant fall wheat too, a winter wheat. But it, it was that whole mentality that we had, you know, to understand um, – and fail better at it. I mean, if, if it didn't work, it didn't work. But we understood historically that it grew here. Um, and those varieties were, were grown here. So why wouldn't they grow now? And, and then we had to continue to, I think it's important for us and for any farmer to have about three quarters of an inch more demand than you have supply. And so as we worked to build this whole business, we kept talking about what we could do or what we could do the next year and talk about that with our chefs and, and folks. And they would say, I want some of that. I want in on that too. Mm -hmm. And we would do our best to, you know, to meet that demand each time. But even now, the marketing piece of it is, is so important yeah the growing part is 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 too but i'm i'm working on marketing product even two years from now still for our farmers um, into the future and and trying to create that to where i can understand that aspect of it and helping them to understand the growing aspect of it then ben the big big piece that I think that has helped us growing wise more than anything has been the relationship that we've built with John Kempf and his staff at Advancing Eco Ag. Mm -hmm. Yeah, talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I took a little bit of chemistry and a lot of biology in school, but oh my goodness, I feel like I have learned so much and every time I either you know visit with John or his his staff or watch you know a webinar I feel like it's a master class every time and I've got you know legal pads full of notes and notes and notes and we had we had experimented with a lot of different products of biologicals and nutritional products foliars and we did soil tests and all of that from the very beginning but it wasn't until we landed on on the AEA products that's been a game changer for us um, 
and for many of our farms. It is now where we understand why we have issues and how to deal with those issues if we have you know disease issues or pest issues or or just you know poor plant health we understand how we can address that now and before you know we were we were either taking it as potluck or we you know we were struggling to try to to figure a remedy um, now we have we have tools that we didn't know existed at the at the beginning, and it's been it's been just an immense um, boost to us as you know for our mental health, but also as our plant health and our farm health. Well, and I'm I'm really interested in hearing more about that because I think you've you've done a great job sort of explaining the origins of your you know your talent as as a relationship builder and as a marketer how did your approach to farming evolve over the years you know why mm-hmm. is it important for you to grow organically without you know toxic chemicals mm-hmm. how did that become a big part of your approach part of it was um an understanding of that i mean that was that was core in in Chris and I's being to begin with. We wanted to know where our food came from as best we could. We wanted to have either organic food or we wanted to know the people that were growing it. That's before we even really got into the farming aspect. We would, you know, we gardened, we did this, um, put up our own food and those kinds of things. But that was really part of our core belief that good food and what we put into our bodies matters to our, you know, to our health as, as a human and as our, as that person. Um, and then we, we continued to see here as, as many farming communities see just the incredible amount of disease of cancer and, and, you know, health problems that many farmers have. Um, and, and we've just had so many of those kinds of conversations, either with farmers or with farmers' widows, who say, if we would have just done something different earlier, maybe we wouldn't have been in this place. And, and we also were, were um, responding to the requests and interest and needs of our clients, our chefs. They wanted things grown without chemical inputs. They wanted things. It didn't have to be certified organic necessarily, but they wanted to know that our relationship meant something and that we would grow it that way for them. And they would come and, you know, visit the farm and help and and do things so that they could, could understand more of that too. So then as we... As we embraced that methodology, um, we were always on the lookout on how we could deal with things that other farmers were dealing with, whether it be bugs or disease and those kinds of things. Coming to the understanding and education that, that John and his staff have provided us, we now understand so much better how to create an immune system to help feed that immune system in our plants 
and how those plants then help feed us and keep our immune systems um, in, in top shape. Well, talk a little bit more about how John Kempf is doing something unique. What, what, what is so special about his approach? Sure. Part of it is um, helping us to, to totally understand what may be missing in our soil or in that plant's uh, physiology of nutrition and what those limiting factors are using sap analysis not tissue analysis, but actual sap analysis, that's helped us, you know, take a look at, you know, a couple different sap analyses throughout the year on specific crops. We can adjust a foliar feed and in two to three weeks actually tell that that through another sap analysis is making a difference. We can see it visually in that crop and we can get to the end of the season and see a huge difference in, in the quality and in the quantity of what we're growing. For instance, we had one variety of corn that just struggled, struggled, struggled with, um, with a lot of disease as far as, as mold or, or just, just poor, poor grain quality. And when we began using the foliar feeds on them and understanding that we needed more manganese, the year that we made that switch and was able, and we were able to do our foliar feeds in a timely fashion, we had almost zero issues in, in grain quality no disease and the and the crop went from being you know four inch ears to eight to twelve inch ears we had so much corn that year that we didn't have to grow that variety the next year now granted we're only growing you know two or three acres of that specific variety but that was what we had like three times the yield of what we had had previous you know, five, six years of growing it. And, and we've been able to replicate that using that same system as we've gone on. In, in the book, you talk a lot about um, working with nature and, and not against it. Mm-hmm. Um, talk, talk a little bit about that and what you meant by that. You know, we're all experiencing and coming to an understanding that, that nature bats last. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. She, with the climate change and, or at least the, what appears to be changes in weather patterns and how, you know, storms are either you know, more severe or we get a lot of rain or we get no rain, we're trying on our farm to make choices as to what kinds of crops we're going to grow that may be more resilient and also what kind of nutritional programs we're going to utilize in order to help those crops be at their best immune to those conditions. We want to have, you know, robust organic matter in our soils. We want to be able to utilize whatever rains that we do get 
that it's captured and stays on our farm and doesn't run off. Um, so we're, you know, doing as many of those kinds of cultural practices as we can. We're making choices about the varieties we grow. We're making choices about how we uh, feed those varieties. And I feel like we're we're honing in on on what does best for us and what is most profitable for our farm, what um, is unique that we can market, and all of those things play into the greater picture of keeping a farm resilient um, and keeping a farm in business. Uh, and I think looking at our farms as being businesses is super important um, that we're not just, you know, growing stuff and hoping that somebody will buy it. We have to have some sort of a plan for whatever it is we're going to produce, where it's going to go, who's going to utilize it, and how are we going to make enough money on that in order to sustain us to go another year and to build build on that. I mean, your story is such a hopeful one. That, I mean, you're you're growing healthy food, and you're giving back to the land. Yet, the conversation when it comes to the future of food seems to be focused on gene editing and lab-grown meat and soilless gardening. H- how do you feel about the future of food? Are you optimistic? I'm extremely optimistic because I I hear and I'm listening to so many young people. We had a young person, a couple of folks at the farm two weeks ago for, the, for a whole day, and they reiterated what I'm hearing from, you know, students who are coming, um, college students, um, just young people in general. They want to connect and understand and be part of a solution for a much more sustainable. They want to have that connection with a local farmer. They want to know who's growing what, how it's being grown. And I just feel like if we can continue to build out a model that helps local communities have access to food, I mean, we all eat. It's not that any of us um, go without food. And we have land, we have young people, we have people that want to be tied to the land. And I think we need to listen to the consumers who, and it's not that we as small farmers, you know, our farmers group, we're not going to feed the world but we can at least feed a community. And if we can continue to do that and prompt, uh, propagate that throughout the country, throughout the world, that's, it, it becomes a, a horizontal uh, business model instead of a vertical model. And it involves a lot more people, a lot more farms. It gives economic uh, incentives to communities, development, um, and it 
and it allows more people who are passionate and have a farm dream to be able to, to utilize and, and to realize that dream. It engages many more people than just a large corporation that's going to produce a meatless product. Well, uh, the Secretary of Agriculture, Sonny Perdue, recently said that the big operations are going to get bigger and the small farmers are going to go away. And mm-hmm. I, I totally reject that. Um, I, I think the future lies with small farmers. But what would you, what advice would you give to small farmers starting out who are hoping to make a living? What would you tell them? A couple things. One, start small. Just start small. Don't get ahead of your skis and listen as intently as you possibly can to understand who wants product and then supply that product to those people. The other thing, besides just starting small, start. You can, you can start part-time and build into it. You can um, grow things that you know that people will like but grow them better than anybody else that you know. Grow the best quality that you can. Um, I don't necessarily subscribe to this ugly produce thing <laughs> um, that you know that is being marketed to. I think that people don't want to buy ugly produce. They want to buy good-looking stuff and utilize that. I think beginning farmers need to be careful and make wise decisions about don't don't go deep into debt start small work your way up and out and hold on tight because things can happen very quickly and we just i mean we were doubling in size or tripling in size like every year and it's it's quite a thing to the other thing is, if, if you are finding success and you're finding that you can't do it all, then find another farmer that can do something also. This whole cooperative model that we've built, the year that we doubled the number of farmers that we had, we nearly tripled our sales that year. Competition between farmers doesn't have to be competition. If we can turn it to cooperation, we can all produce more. We can produce more as far as what works best for our farms. We don't have to produce everything. And that's kind of what I was saying earlier where we were doing hundreds of items a year. And maybe we weren't doing you know, two thirds of them really well but now we can focus it on 30 or 40 different crops instead of 200 and do those really well, pass off that other 200 between another 50 farms and allow them the opportunity to do something really well. And it all gets sold. It all goes somewhere. And, and through that, then we've continued to build a whole community of farmers that can provide provide great product to the community and and beyond. Marty, thanks so much for joining us and congratulations on the book. Ben, 
thank you for this opportunity to share. I really appreciate this. Thanks so much. Well, there you have it. Thanks to Marty for joining us today. And go buy his book. It's available for pre-order on the Acres USA online bookstore. That's acresusa.com. And we'd love to see you at EcoAg. So please go to acresusa.com to look for more information there. And thanks to Sarah Day-Levesque for joining us today to tell us more about that. Have a great week, everyone.